going on, everyone? This will be episode 77 of the Strength and Success Show. Riley will hop on here in a minute and send a joint request. Episode 77 is titled, Fail Again, But Better. <laughs> We're seeking out failure here today. <laughs> We're going to talk about that. It is pouring, so hopefully the weather does not knock us offline or interrupt us in any way, shape, or form. There is the view request. It takes about eight seconds, and it's usually four, but I like to you know, underestimate and over-deliver. <laughs> There we go. Hello. Hello. I stole your line. Yeah, I, it's better to say it. Yeah. How are you doing? Uh, doing very well. I have some coffee because it's a gloomy rainy day, and I feel like you have to have coffee on gloomy rainy days. I usually just like eat a bunch of ice cream and then lay in bed and wait for the car to come and kick in. I like that strategy too. That's a good one. <laughs> Fresh out of ice cream, though, so I guess I'm just gonna have to like go for the spicy water and the spicy water and swamp water combo. My purple, my purple swamp water today. Uh, it's a good color. It's a good color. That uh, that wild berry Skittles sugar free. So good. <laughs> I might be biased towards purple things, but it looks great. I don't know what that was. Did you just vibrate? What the hell was that? <laughs> Yeah, that was a message. Uh, it was one of my, an Instagram message came down. Oh, okay. He's holding it like, ah. I was like, man, it's like some kind of like uh, Trump, like wrong. <laughs> All right, so episode 77, fail again, but better. This is a cool topic um, because people get, I shouldn't say people, but a lot of us get fixated on the um, failure aspect. You know, if you have a goal, let's say someone wants to total 1,500 and they total 1,480, they're like, ah, oh, I failed. I didn't hit 1,500. And it's either pass or fail, and they lose sight of the gray area. But if the previous meet they did before that, they had totaled 1,420, 1,430, and this meet they totaled 1,480, it wasn't exactly a failure. They didn't hit the long-term target or the big target goal, but they were better. They failed at the big goal, but they were better, and they're going to learn from it. They're going to have things to come from it. You're going to get feedback on what systems work for you, what could you improve upon, what you did better. Uh, I always joke that a nine for nine day doesn't tell you shit as far as what you need to do because you missed, you, you made everything, you had no misses. You don't know your areas of opportunity or things to work on from a nine for nine day uh, because it went great. So sometimes we need to, I don't want to say put a goal too far ahead of ourselves, but it's okay to miss the mark a little bit as long as we take the time to look back at all the lessons learned along the way because there's a likelihood that we're going to fail sometimes or even often at goal achievement. But every time we do fail, we learn from it what we can do better. So it's okay to fail. Just make sure that every time you're failing, you're failing better. You're getting something from it. You're taking something away from it. You're learning from it. And not looking at the mindset of, oh, I failed, so I should just give up. Or I failed, or I should quit. Um, I'm always a big believer that the only true way to fail is to stop trying. So anyone who stops trying, that's the ultimate failure because you quit on yourself, not the goal. Yes, you have a goal, but if you quit, you literally quit on yourself. The goal is going to be there for a thousand other people too, but they're still going, so you quit on you. That's the only reason why you haven't achieved something. If you haven't achieved something yet, it's just because you haven't learned how to or what you need to do or change your lifestyle enough to be committed to that process for that goal. So being okay with failure is fine, but be better every time you fail from it. I think that how you define failure is also important in this instance. Like to me, the way that I define failure particularly is like you mentioned, just giving up entirely and quitting. Um, another way that I define failure, and I, I hesitate to even call it failure, 
um, is like if you take a step back. Um, because it's not necessarily a failure, like life happens, things happen, whatever. Sometimes you do take steps back before you take steps forward. But like realistically to me, um, if you kind of work hard for something and you stay in the same spot or you work hard for something and you are just barely better or like just one step ahead instead of 10 steps ahead like you want to be, that's not a failure at all. Um, in like powerlifting terms, uh, you know, like we talked about this recently with my, the way that I have been structuring my meets in weight classes and totals. So what I've been doing the last four meets is basically toggling back and forth between 148, 165, 148, 165. And with 148, you know, I'll get my total. And then 165, I'll get my total. For that next 148 meet that I have, my goal there is to aim to beat or match my 165 total. That tells me, me personally, that I made progress. Um, and, you know, like this last go at 148, I matched my 165 total. So that's not a failure to me because I didn't beat it. I matched it. So I showed that there was an improvement in my 148 total because I beat my old 148 total. And I also matched my total at 165 in a weight class up. So to me, that's not a failure at all. Like I had high hopes for a different total at that meet, but overall I still am showing improvements. Um, my total didn't necessarily go up between the last 165 meet and then this 148 meet, but realistically in relation to my body weight, it did. So I don't view that as a failure. It's frustrating. Like it, it was frustrating to go uh, six for nine and like not have the day that I thought that I could. And realistically, that's how most meets are going to go. Unless like Trevor mentioned, you go nine for nine and like you smoke everything and like, that's great too. That feels awesome, you know, to hit PRs across the board. But like it is sometimes it can be an issue of like you didn't really try super super hard like my first meet i went nine for nine um granted it was an apf meet so there were lots of things that were a little bit lax compared to some of the other competitions that i've done but uh my the only meet that i've ever gone nine for nine on is my first meet and ever since then i haven't gone nine for nine and that doesn't bother me like that i don't view that as a failure because i know that i push myself on my thirds the whole point of me showing up to a meet is to uh like we say, fuck it, load the bar. So for thirds, that's what I, so for thirds, that's what I want to do is just like, you know, if I nailed my second, then I'm going to load it for whatever PR that I'm aiming for. Um, sometimes, sometimes I know that they're probably not going to happen, but I'm going to try anyways, because why not? I'm already there. Um, you know, so I think that the way that you define failure really ultimately determines your mindset about it. Um, like I said, the only way that I would view failure is if, like I just stopped quitting powerlifting because I had one bad meet. I've had pretty much three back-to-back -back preps that haven't been great. And I don't sit here bitching about it. Uh, I don't, not contemplating quitting powerlifting. I'm having, you know, I've had like lows in powerlifting, but I'm not going to quit because that to me is failure. Um, even like taking a little step back and like whatever that sucks and that doesn't feel good and it's frustrating. I don't necessarily define that as a failure though. That just means that I have for not not to be cliche but that means I have a comeback you know like that means that I'm going to come back improve and on the areas that I need to but sometimes you fall a little bit short before you can kind of propel yourself forward but how you define failing ultimately determines to me how far you'll go you have to look forward to the lessons uh, I mention that often like Stacey Burr put up a post about um, people who are hungry to win and there was a line picture to it and then People who are hungry to do the work necessary to win, and that line was empty. 
And the, the work to me is the reward. It, it doesn't matter if, if I total more or swap more or deadlift more. That's always fun. Yeah, that's a long-term goal. But the work is the reward because there are so many people who, who just don't show up. You know, they don't put any effort into themselves. They don't invest in themselves. And the biggest return on investment is investing in yourself. Whatever something means to you, if you can go all in on that and invest yourself, that's your biggest return on investment. That is your purpose. That is your reason for living for the most part. Uh, and for, for both Rod and I, you know, it's about helping a lot of people and inspiring people. And I don't want to say changing lives because I don't want to be that, that presumptuous that I change people's lives, but at least doing something to make someone's life better. As, hence the point of the Strength and Success podcast is giving you perspective that might help you in your journey in some aspect, whether it's in the sport, the strength itself, or in life in general. But that's what gives me purpose is constantly showing up, constantly doing that. And I treat training the same way that we treat our clients and our work and the podcast or captions is giving something to someone else in return, getting something from it, which is satisfaction of doing something for not just ourselves, being bigger than ourselves. And that's, that's the lesson to me. That's why I really admire the work. Um, I don't care to, to like certain posts that don't move me in that way. What I mean by that is I'll see someone's posts. Um, maybe it's like arrogant or braggadocious. I don't care. But if I know someone's training or struggling or working through things and making things happen, I'm going to like that post much more because they understand that the work is the reward. They're still there showing up. They're still giving everything they have. They're still trying. And to me, that is so much more impactful than someone who just doesn't appreciate what they have or, or you know, gives up or doesn't care or moves on. Be something to someone. Be someone to yourself. And that is the whole point of fail again, but be better. Because look forward to the lessons that every one of those setbacks or misses teaches you because you're going to impart that down the line to other people as well. And I've talked about this before that, you know, everything that I've learned and I'm still learning took me 29 and a half years of lifting and learning and, and lessons where people can get that now in three to five years because of the internet and the way we have information now to do that. And it, it feels good to take 29 years of lessons and impart that on someone. They can learn it 10 times as fast as I did because I had to go through a lot of pain, a lot of agony to get that lesson and I get to pass it on. And those were my fail again, but better moments. Because unlike Riley, I've never gone nine for nine. And I truly don't care if I do. I care that I show up every day and give the best I can. Yeah. Um, also, you know, like realistically, whatever you decide to do, like whatever new venture you decide to take on, you're probably going to fail at it at some point because it's new. Um, and, you know, if you're choosing something like powerlifting or even any other strength sport, like strongman, CrossFit, like weightlifting, any of those things, whatever you choose, it's going to be hard. There's going to be days where like you get absolutely crumpled by the weight. And like, that's not necessarily a testament of like you not being strong enough or not good enough or not able to do it. There's probably a lot of outside factors that led to being crumpled. You know, like everyone wants to dismiss um, things that are happening in your life as reasons why you can't, or as they want to dismiss that that leads to lack of progress. But like, if you're always stressed out, if you're never uh, on top of things, if you're never eating the right things, if you're never hydrating or sleeping, you know, the same things that we beat a dead horse about all the time. If you're never doing any of those things, you're never going to get any stronger. Um, so like outside of that, regardless of what, what new venture you take on, you're going to fail at it. So, and you're going to fail at it even if you're five, 10, 15 years into it. Like that's just how it works. It's not just always going to be that you wake up every day and like everything's super easy because you want it to be. Uh, you could take up knitting and that could be your hobby. And that's gonna be hard as fuck for a little bit too because you're not gonna know how to knit. Like you're gonna have to figure it out. 
So anything that you do is going to be hard. You just have to, I've seen this somewhere before, I don't know where, but you have to choose your hard. Like you have to choose what you want to do. So if you're someone who is powerlifting, but you're constantly bitching about how much you hate powerlifting and you're constantly complaining about how you don't like it and you want to quit, then just quit. You probably don't like it enough to like stick with it through when it's hard. If you're constantly hating it and you wake up every single day dreading it, no one's, no one has a gun to your head making you do it. So change it. You know, like if you're that bogged down by like not being instantly great at something, then find something else, I guess, or toughen up a little bit. I don't know. It's like, you're not going to be, there are people who are good at things for the first time. You know, there are people that are great at things for the first time. Those are outliers. For the most part, we're not all going to pick up something, a new hobby and like be immediately great at that. We're probably going to fail at it for a little bit too. Um, I played volleyball for a very long time and I, if I didn't fuck up my life, I would have, could have played collegiate volleyball and like been scouted for that. Um, when I started, it's in my blood, like my, my whole family plays volleyball. So like it should, it's like genetically disposed to me, but it wasn't easy for me when I started it. I had a slight advantage over people who had never done it before, who never like were around it, sure. But it was hard for me too, but I enjoyed it. So I kept pushing through. So every time I felt like I failed, I was like, you know what, this, this fuels me to try harder. I don't want to fail at this because I really, really love it. So I want to keep working so that way I don't fail. So if your immediate reaction when you fail, quote unquote, however you want to describe that, if your immediate reaction when you fail is to quit, I don't know that you love whatever you're doing enough to deal with those failures. So find whatever it is that you love enough to be okay with failing at it. I agree 100%. All right, let's get to some questions and get off our serious note and get to the questions and answers because that does help more people here. The podcast live recording, you guys are welcome to ask questions on the live. We have questions that people have sent us from our story Q&As that we will also answer. Chances are, if you had a little bit more of a longer question than our Q&A that we didn't get to, we'll probably answer them here. We can be a little bit more in depth on some of them. So what's our first question, Riley? Okay, top things to remember when pulling sumo. Top things to remember when pulling sumo is to not think at all. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in developing autonomy, which means that you shouldn't have to think about chest up, knees out, hips in. You know, if you're thinking about three different cues, you've, you've already screwed up the lift because you want your body to coordinate into one solid unit in unison. So I usually tell people to narrow it down to the most vital cue to you. And that vital cue might not even have anything to do with movement, when I deadlifted yesterday uh, and I was working up, I had to work up to a fairly, fairly heavy top single. And right before my top single, it was uh, like Kubla, Kubla Khan radio was on. It was pretty aggressive. And the last thing I said to myself before I deadlifted the 771 was relax. That was literally it. That was my cue. Relax. Because I've learned over the years that I pull better when I'm calm and when I'm relaxed and not when I'm agitated and tight and amped up. So if you're thinking about seven different cues that you have to do, you're thinking about too much. And I don't care if it's sumo, conventional, bench, or deadlift. If you're going to think about something, make it one thing. One thing only is all you should be thinking about. It's whatever the most important breakdown of your lift is or something that puts you in the right headspace that you're focused on what you have to do. For me, it was relax. Before I squat, it's breathe because I set my brace entirely from my breath. So that's the last thing I think about is breathe. And bench, I usually say some kind of prayer <laughs> <laughs> to the gods I don't believe in. <laughs> my uh my immediate thought for top things to remember when pulling sumo was to remember that you're pulling sumo uh you know like don't be like basically the same thing of what you're saying is like don't be so focused on something else or like 
so hyper fixated on 47 million cues that you forget that you're pulling sumo. Like you have to be present in that moment. Um, so I definitely think that the top thing to remember when pulling or any lift is like patience. Um, real like consistency or repetition. I don't know what you want to call it because you know, we talk about this often, um, how the empty bar should be, you should set up for the empty bar the same as you set up for your max single. So consistency and repetition throughout the whole, all the way up to your max single uh, is going to be what is most important. So patience, and then don't do anything drastically different. Like if your if your last warm up moved great, you want to move your heavy single the same way that your last warm up moved. So stop trying to change things just because it gets heavy. Um, a lot of people get in their heads when it gets above a certain percentage or weight or number, or whatever, um, and they start to change things. And it's like their warm ups go great and they're like nailing positions. And this isn't just for sumo, this is for all the lifts. They're like nailing positions and moving things great. And then it's like, it gets to 90% and they're just like, and now I'm gonna do to something totally different. And you're like, why? <laughs> so realistic patience, patience and confidence. I think that that should realistically be your last thought before any lift. Yeah, 100%. Anytime someone rushes or gets tired or amps up, they, they can screw it up. So patience, yeah. relax, just calm down and enjoy it. Okay, um, next question is nutritional changes to help keep strength. So nutritional changes, it's, it's hard to emphasize a change for someone when you don't know what they're personally doing. <laughs> so let's go over some basics here. Basics being that a calorie is a metric of energy expenditure. The amount of calories you burn is how much energy you're burning off. And within that calorie structure, we have macronutrients. Or macronutrients are protein, carbs, and fats, and alcohol. But alcohol is not a performance-based macronutrient. So the macronutrient most responsible for performance is generally carbohydrates. That's the energy we're running off of. You want to make sure that you have adequate carbohydrates to fuel your performance and the fuel duration of your entire workout. And also make sure that you're repairing and recovering glycogen stores for the next possible training session. Carbohydrates are also muscle sparing, but muscle repairing is going to come down to protein. You have to make sure you're meeting your protein requirements, not exceeding them. So if your protein requirements are 150 grams, you're eating 250 grams, that's 100 grams of wasted macronutrient that's not necessarily going to benefit you more. And it could have benefited you more if it was 100 grams of carbohydrate because it's going to give you more energy for performance for sustained duration recovery. So it's hard to say what changes you should make. In fact, you just lie to make sure you're not into a too low of a level, you know, less than 25 or 30 grams. And you don't necessarily need to have too high of a fat level. And certain fats can be argued whether or not they're unhealthy or not like uh, refined saturated fats from uh, like fried foods and whatnot. Your body can't break them down because it can't reach a temperature point to break them down. So they tend to clog things up and slow things down. Those aren't necessarily great for performance either because they're going to weigh you down metabolically and slow you down. So as far as changes, usually it comes down to choices. Uh, know what your macros should be. If you're going to be in a deficit, if you're going to be in maintenance, or if you're going to be in a surplus to try and grow, know what the macros are. Plan. One of the biggest changes people fail to do is plan their meals ahead of time. And it doesn't take a lot of work to do this. It's five minutes to say, I'm going to the grocery store. What do I need to get to stick to my nutrition program? Plan it, write it out, make sure you have those things. If you don't have the meats, the fruits, the rices, whatever starches or healthy fats you're coming from, then you're going to reach for whatever's there and convenient when you run out of time. You didn't run out of time. You just didn't plan. So the biggest change most people need to make is planning ahead. You know, when they have nothing to do on Sunday, write out their week, what they're going to be eating on those days. Make sure you go to the grocery store, get those meals, and understand where they should be. It's just a matter of planning and preparing is really the biggest change and knowing what you should have for your goal. So educate yourself, plan and prepare, and, and apply. Once you've planned it, simply apply it. Nutrition is literally paint by numbers. 
you're painting by numbers. This is how much protein I should have. This is how much carbohydrate I should have. This is where my fat intake should be. This is how many meals I have. Let me divide that by my five meals or however many you eat. These are the times of day I'm going to do it. All you're doing with your nutrition program is painting by numbers. Yeah. Um, the, the protein aspect can probably not be overstated. Um, that's, some, that's an area I struggle with with nutrition, but we're not talking about me right now. Um, <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Um, I would say probably 80% of the clients that I'm working with currently for nutrition. Now, when I start with someone, um, I have them log three days of food so that way I can see how they eat normally and then make changes and adjustments based off their goals there. I would say 80% of those clients were vastly under eating protein. Um, I mean, like 165 pound woman taking in maybe 70 grams of protein a day. That's not sufficient for muscle building, for strength, um, for anything it, that's that's not good um so that's like the main thing is that most people are under eating their protein and it is a little bit harder to come by especially if you are um someone who's busy and if you aren't taking the time to meal prep like trevor is talking about it's going to be a lot harder to find ready-made protein sources that aren't going to absolutely wreck your macros elsewhere um a lot of like ready-made protein things are really, really high in fat. Um, like I love like the adult Lunchables, like those, uh, like the mini charcuterie boards that you can buy at the store. But like, if I look at those, it'll be like 12, 13 grams of protein. And I'm like, oh, that's not bad for a snack. But then if you look at the fats, it's like 24 grams of fat. And if you're someone who's, you know, macronutrients only allow 60 grams of fat a day, that's a significant portion of your fats. And then you have to like kind of, uh, rearrange your macros for the rest of the day and it becomes very very difficult so if you're trying to always have ready-made meals instead of meal planning or prepping or whatever um you're gonna have a hard time finding protein in those kind of things just because it's not easily available that's why that's why they make more protein powders than anything else um so the protein is really really an important and vital aspect to have carbohydrates also because like trevor mentioned that is fuel it fuels muscle glycogen it gives you a good pump it gives you good energy all that kind of stuff um said neither of neither of those need to be timed in a certain way like you know everyone's like oh do i have my carbohydrates post-workout intra-workout uh, pre-workout do i have my do i have 20 grams of protein per meal when's the anabolic window all those kind of things there are no studies for any of those that actually are proven to show that there is an anabolic window proven to show that you can only consume the amount of protein like everyone's like you can only con uh, absorb 20 grams of protein per meal it's not actually true you can you can take in 30 40 grams of protein uh per meal uh same thing with carbohydrates like there's not anything proven to show that pre-workout is better than post-workout or post-workout is better than pre-workout or the intra-workout is even effective. It's not about those small nuance, nuances. It's about the consistency. So if you are supposed to hit 160 grams of protein every single day, I don't care if it's 50 grams with your breakfast and then 50 grams with your lunch and then the 60 with dinner. I don't care. That's your goal for the day. You hit your goal protein for the day. Uh, if you do that consistently every single day, that is better than if you were to not be meeting your protein goals or whatever. So it does not matter the uh, the windows that you think are necessary for carbohydrate or protein intake. Those are actually not proven to be true. So that's just like a small minor tangent off on the question. But uh, ultimately, if you're a strength athlete, making sure that you are eating adequate protein, making sure that you're eating adequate carbohydrates, and making sure that you're just 
eating the right amount of calories that you need to be having in order to maintain or build muscle. If you're vastly under eating all the time, you're probably not going to build any muscle unless you're using some sort of anabolics. So even then it's, it's difficult. Eventually it catches up to you. It's going to be difficult. However, you're going to be losing muscle mass. You know, you can only comp compensate and cover up so much. And like you said, it's focusing on the big picture, which is knowing what your calorie intake is, make sure you're hitting your protein goals, you know, going from those small steps. So if someone's talking about changes, the first change I would make is know what your macros and your calories should be. The second step is starting the plan. And the third step is implementation and just being consistent. You know, there's a lot of people who do that where they eat great Monday through Friday and they eat like shit on the weekends. And on the weekends, they're having 30 to 40 grams of protein total because they're partying all the time and having a bunch of alcohol, no actual food. And then they're like, I'm not getting anywhere. Well, it's, it's great that you did five straight days, but you did two shitty ones with 30 back two days. So then you're going to play catch up and getting a nice week and you're going to go in, you're going to go up five, down two, up five, down two, over and over and over again. It's a cycle. You know, learn to be consistent on a daily basis with that. That's where you're going to get your best results. So if you want to make a change, make it every day. And it's, it's, it doesn't have to be complicated. If you have 200 grams of carbs per day and you eat four meals a day, that is 50 grams of carbs per meal. It doesn't be complicated. Like it does not have to be, you know, like 35 pre-workout, 27 post-workout. It doesn't have to be that way. Just make it even. Make it make it make sense. That's it. That's all you have to do. Take my numbers. All right, next question. How to get better quality sleep? I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have read every article, every book. I've taken every supplement. Um, the hardest thing for me to do is to shut off my brain and relax. But there are steps, of course, that do help to some degree, such as making your house cooler. You know, the darkening of the room as much as possible. The darker the room, the more calm, more relaxed you're going to be. Stop looking at blue lights before bed. If, if we talked about this before, if you're looking at your phone or the television all up at the time you go to bed, your body thinks it's daytime because the blue lights that come from these devices, such as your phone or the television, don't tell your body that it's nighttime and start stimulating melatonin to calm you down. You can take melatonin as a supplement, but it's better if your body can produce it naturally on its own and know when it is nighttime to slow your system down, to start making it aware it's nighttime. That's one of the reasons why Dr. Andrew Cooperman talks about the first thing you should do in the morning is go outside for 10 to 30 seconds and look into the sunlight because it tells your body this is morning, this is the day, and you're trying to set that internal clock. Same thing happens when the sun goes down. You should be making your house darker and looking at less lights. You can buy blue light blocker glasses, but really that's not changing your habit. Blue light blocker glasses, if you're still watching something that stimulates your brain until bedtime, is going to keep you up. So just because you block the blue light doesn't mean you didn't trickle and stimulate your brain going watching television. Learn to shut things off an hour before you go to bed. Give yourself an hour of time to unwind. Read, warm shower, take a bath. I don't give a shit what you choose to do to unwind, but find a way to wind it down before you go to bed. For a lot of people, journaling and brain dump. You know, anything you're thinking about at the time, writing it down into a journal so they're not thinking about it all night when they're in bed can help a lot of people as well. So darken the room, cool in the room, stay away from caffeine, you know, in the afternoon, all the way before bedtime if you can help it. Avoid blue light things or things that stimulate your brain. So, you know, listening to Pantera at 11 o'clock at night if you're going to bed at 11.15 isn't the best idea. Um, the, this, is why, this is one of the reasons why back in the day around I stopped watching the news. I'm like, this is all bad news. And it just put me in a bad mood. So don't watch the news. The things like that trigger you. The things that go on in the politics of the world. Don't read those articles. Don't watch those things. Avoid anything that would amp you up emotionally. The entire idea is to calm yourself down as much as possible to recover. And then if you can teach me how to shut my brain off, even with all of that, I would love you to death. I think it's funny that you told people to go out and stare into the sun. So there's going to be a whole bunch of people that are going to be like, Trevor Jaffe told me that.
go outside and stare at the sun, and they're gonna have retina damage. <laughs> uh, look into the light. Unlike guys, <laughs> stay away from the light, Caroline. Poltergeist, go to the light. Go, go to the light. <laughs> Take Caroline. That she was kind of annoying. It was just funny the way you said it. You're like, go outside and stare into the sun. <laughs> a lot of it in my lifetime. <laughs> you're you're not wrong though. I think the I think the biggest problem that most people have. Um, hi, Sophie. The problem that most people have with the sleep cycle and everything tends to be their uh, melatonin production is not adequate either way, and that comes from shutting off the blue lights, uh, getting into a dark room, like not having the lights on. And it also means that when you get up, that you are in natural sunlight. Um, that's like one of my favorite ways to wake up, honestly, is just by natural sunlight. Like I don't like waking up by an alarm. I have a, I have a Sophie alarm now that wakes me up somewhere between seven and seven thirty every single day. Um, but I love waking up with like natural sunlight. Like if I have big windows in my room, um, I like having those blinds open so that way it can wake me up that way. Um, but that seems to be the biggest problem that society has now, or like our like Instagram, social media has now, is that we're all on our phones until five minutes before we go to bed. And then we're all immediately also on our phones when we wake up. Um, if you do that, immediately getting on your phone when you break up, it like, it, um, it disrupts your alpha and theta waves, I think, which are actually the brain waves that are responsible for like creativity, for concentration, for focus and all that stuff. So they, there are studies to show that if you are immediately grabbing your phone upon waking up, that you are disrupting your ability to focus during the day because those blue lights will block that from happening. Someone can fact check me or look it up, but that's just an article that I saw from uh, a neuroscientist that I follow on Instagram. Um, so that seems to be the biggest thing is, I mean, there's many of other things like supplementation, uh, like Trevor mentioned, taking a bath, um, having tea, whatever it is, like however you calm down, all those things too. But the main thing seems to be limiting the blue light and also stimulating yourself with natural light in the morning. One of the reasons why the culture supplements for nighttime is the magnesium glycinate and the good night. Both of them have calming things in there. Magnesium is going to calm your nervous system. The good night has lemon balm and things like that that help calm your system as well. They're trying to calm and relax you so you can fall asleep. Uh, I'm not going to call anybody out, but how many clients do you have that are sending you updates or videos and they're in the same time zone or one time zone over to you at one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning and then their next workout, they're like, oh, it's really shitty. And I'm like, well, I wonder why you're messaging me at two in the morning. <laughs> I get free at night from those people and the next workout of that week, like, I'm so fatigued. I'm like, you literally at 2.30 a.m. in the exact same time zone I'm in are sending me videos. I wonder why. Yeah, I mean, I understand that some people work like overnights or like, you know, it'll be like the beginning of their shift. Like I have a couple people that are nurses and work overnight shifts and do those sort of things. So like them, I'll kind of cut slack just because they have weird schedules anyways. But yeah, there'll be plenty of people that like, I stop, I try to stop responding to clients between like 930 and 10. And uh, it'll be like, I'll wake up in the morning and it'll be like 1221 AM. And it's someone who like Trevor said, is in the same time zone as me. And they're like, got my workout in, felt okay. And I'm like, I know that this person is going to work out tomorrow at like 2 p.m. And it's not even like a 12 hour like turnaround and they're going to be already back in the gym and like probably going to have a bad time. All the time. It happens all the time. I mean, if they're in a different time zone, like I have people that are in the California time zone and they can be messaging me at 11 o'clock at night. I know that's 8 p.m. their time. That's reasonable. 
But if there are people who are within my time zone or one time zone over, it's coming through after midnight. I'm like, you're the reason you're fatigued. That's nothing to do with the amount of law you were doing, anything. You are the reason you're fatigued. You should be sleeping. Yep. Much good. Move more towards like 9.30. But like 9.30 p.m., I don't want to be answering people on Instagram because I want to start shutting my brain down because it is a struggle for me. So 9.30 is like becoming, 9.30, is becoming my cutoff. Okay. What do you put in water to make it taste better? And what do you drink intro workout? I, 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 I have so many different flavors and brands of things. I'm obsessed with like the Skittles sugar-free packets, both the regular ones and their, uh, whatever the pastel ones, what are those called? Tropical, Skittles Tropical. Walmart has an abundance of things that both cause diabetes and help you prevent them. <laughs> their sugar-free flavoring is fantastic. I just got, um, what's the soda? There's like a grape soda or whatever. They have a bunch of, they have a watermelon, like a lime, but they're also sugar-free. Beginning of the podcast is the wild berry skittles sugar-free there is actually the culture greens in here and a little bit of whey protein because this is my intro drink from training still it's called crush crush thank you crush has like a, a tropical flavor as well it's that's pineapple lemonade and watermelon i think but if you look in the the drink section the soda section of walmart they have all these sugar-free flavorings you can use so i, I like the flavor of water because i'm much more apt to drink it when it tastes good i usually add electrolytes to all the water i drink because just having plain water can actually dilute you of minerals and electrolytes. If you only drink plain water, you can actually dilute yourself of those vital electrolytes and nutrients, uh, especially if you have a lot of it. So make sure you're supplementing some in there. It could be as simple as putting, um, I know Joe Sullivan talked about this years ago. I don't know if he still does this, but he was putting like Himalayan sea salt in all of his drinks because it's loaded with minerals as well. And then there's electrolytes. So it's super easy and dirt cheap. If you don't like to spend a lot of money, you can literally go on Amazon and for six bucks buy like a pound of Himalayan sea salt that will last you an entire year for six dollars and just scoop a little bit in each one of your drinks and you're good to go. It's not, it doesn't taste like a bunch of salt if you're putting a small amount in there with the flavoring, it just tastes good and you're more, you're more likely to keep drinking it. So that's all I do. Uh, I usually take a gallon, I dump enough out for my intra and in the intra I add like 15 grams of whey protein, half a scoop of the greens, a thermo tab, which is a buffered sodium and, and um, sodium and potassium chloride tablet, and then creatine's in there as well. So I have that in there, and then the rest of it is just electrolytes like sodium from like uh, Propel's or just the Thermotaps themselves. With the flavoring, I drink that all morning. When it comes time to the workout, I dump the workout one in there, and I drink that for the rest of the day as I go through. And I just keep drinking, and then every now and again, like, you know, the spicy water from Walmarts are also really freaking good, too. I tend to, uh, I tend to love the spicy water. Also, uh, intro workout or like regular water, my intro workout tends to be body armors. Um, I like those because it's coconut water based and they have the electrolytes in them too. They have a little bit of carbs and calories. Um, so I, I generally buy like six packs of those from Walmart or sometimes order them from Amazon, but I like the body armors. Um, aside from that, I generally put like liquid IV in my water, which is also like a electrolyte based drink and it has uh, sea salt in there it has magnesium potassium all those things those ones have a little bit of carbs to them also so um i just have to be conscious of how many liquid ivs i'm putting into my water when i'm tracking calories but aside from that i also use like the skittles packets um uh other walmart brand packets and stuff like that too and I think that's that's about it. I don't get too fancy with it. I mostly have spicy waters. <laughs> spicy. <laughs> All right, what's our next question? Uh, establishing credibility as a new coach. Oh, I remember this one. This one when I talked about it. And I actually looked at the guy's profile who sent the question, Curiosity. Um, 
he didn't have very much on there except for his own lifting. And I looked at it after the fact, I answered it first. And I remember when I answered it, I said, you know, what are you doing to help other people? And I wanted them to clarify that I wasn't being facetious with that. That's reality. Your credibility comes from the amount of people you help and that are getting a, res a result and a response and are enjoying the process with you or enjoying the result with you. They start to become your biggest cheerleader, cheerleaders and they share that. They share their journey, they share the success, they share your name around, they do things. So if you're not going out of your way to help a lot of people, it's going to be very difficult to build any type of credibility. I have met PhDs in exercise science who couldn't teach a bodyweight squat. I shit you not, in my years I went through, they have CSCS degrees because it's a written test. There's no application necessary. There's zero application necessary to get a CSCS degree other than a written test. And they couldn't teach a proper bodyweight squat because they never took the time to learn how to apply it themselves. And so how could they help anyone? They just had that book experience, that book education. So establishing credibility is putting information or putting material or taking the time to go to, go to gyms and give free clinics and go to, give, give, go to meets and give help. Go to gyms and offer advice. You know, some people aren't gonna want it, that's fine. But the more people you are helping, the more credibility you're going to establish as somebody who cares, someone who knows what they're doing and someone to be trusted and valued. It's not just going to come to you because you've taken a test. Anyone in their world can take a test and pass a test. I, I knew a, a woman back in the day. We always joked. She was like a savant. She was just incredibly dull-witted in person and could barely have a conversation. But anytime she wanted to go do something, she would pass a test like some kind of savant. We're like, how? <laughs> she just didn't seem intelligent enough to do this. And so it would be scary because she'd be in fields where you need to actually have application uh, nursing and things like that. You need to actually have application and experience so you don't harm somebody. But you have to demonstrate that you're able to communicate. You have to demonstrate you're able to help. You have to mostly demonstrate that you want to help. There's a lot of people who put coach in their bio and don't know what they're doing and don't care to help. They just want you to pay them. The more you demonstrate you're here to help, like, like this podcast is free. We answer questions every single week and we answer more questions beyond the story. That's a demonstration of how we help. I have over five years of free content, free videos and free tutorials on my Instagram that's there forever that people can go and look and learn and do. That's, that's help. I ask for nothing in return that other people just share it so it can help more people. Save it and share it to help more people. That's all I ask for people. That's why I put it out there is to help. That is how I establish credibility as someone who cares and someone who knows and someone who can help simply by giving it away. And then I have clients who come to me who want more in-depth in -depth help or personal help and guidance and they become paying clients. But there is a tremendous amount of information that's simply just put out there with no intention other than helping other people. That's the best and probably the strongest way to create that credibility because no one's just going to come to you because you have credentials after your last name unless you've done anything to demonstrate that you're able to do this for others and that you even want to. There's a lot of people who have the education who hate it and don't even want to, but they got the education, so like, I might as well use it. Yeah, I think the, I think the best way to establish credibility is really by, like, word of mouth of your clients. Um, in the beginning of me coaching, I wasn't very good at advertising for myself and I really didn't want to and that's still something that I kind of struggle with but in the beginning the way that my client base grew is that the people that I was working with I was helping them and they were talking to their friends or they were talking in the gym and they were saying like oh you know I had a breakthrough from you know working with Riley and we did this and whatever and so then more people started contacting me or like I would you know I would share if someone did a meet, I would share it to my story, share it to my page and be like, oh, so-and-so went uh, eight for nine, went blah, 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 added this much to their total. Like I was 
bragging about my clients. And it's to me, it wasn't necessarily about um, like, oh, I'm going to do this so that way I can get more clients. It was like, I want to show off my clients hard work. Like I really, it, uh, I, I, I never get teary eyed over myself with lifting. Like I can hit a PR and I'll leave the platform and I'll just be like, me, cool. You know, <laughs> I'll see a client hit a PR and it like makes me want to cry because I'm just like proud. And I'm just like, wow, they worked really hard for that. I got to help them in some capacity. Um, that means a lot to me. So that was in the beginning, that is what helped grow my client base was having everyone else talk about me in a positive way. This also goes the other way too. So make sure that if you are uh, a coach, you are putting your best foot forward. Like we're not all going to be perfect all the time. We're not all going to make the right choices all the time or say the right things. But I promise you that if you consistently are not a good coach, someone's going to hear about it. I have gotten, um, I generally, I never ask for the names because it's not really my business, but when I get new client intake forms and, you know, they tell me like my, my old coach didn't pay attention to me. My old coach always sent programs late. Um, my old coach never gave me any feedback anymore. Like that spreads around. So just as much as you want to be positive and you are like wanting to show that you are helping people, you have to be careful about the other end of it too. So if you're just like Trevor mentioned, you're just trying to take people's money and you're not actually helping anyone, it's going to eventually get out. So you have to make sure that if you're doing this, you're doing this for the right reasons and that you want to help. Um, yeah, it's a nice way to make extra money, but like don't advertise that you're coaching then advertise that you're just giving a program. Um, so I think that that's, you know, that's going to be the main way to establish more credibility. And also I think it's important to kind of choose, choose a little bit of a niche with how you help, right? Like Trevor puts up a lot of videos about, um, I don't want to call them correctives, but about like ways to improve your squat bench and deadlift. Uh, he puts up a lot of like, you know, thoughtful, like, this is why we do the movement. This is why we do this. Uh, make sure that you're doing it this way to get it the most effective. So Trevor's niche kind of is movement within, within powerlifting. For me, mine tends to be like the mindset and the psychology base of it. Um, so that those are the things that I post about. Trevor really, really enjoys the movement aspect and breaking those things down and making them easily applicable. So that's what he posts about. I enjoy providing people with different perspectives, talking about uh, how to overcome mental barriers and things like that. So those are the things that I post about. If you are someone who is really, really keen on mobility and you're really, you know, like that's that's the thing that you're really, you know, like kind of focusing on and that's the thing that you really enjoy learning about start posting things about that because that's going to be kind of the thing that you eventually get known for in a way um like I receive a lot of clients that are like you know I really love the I really love that you go over the mental aspect of lifting and that you're not just like a brute force lifter you know you know that there are things that go into this that are mental not just physical so whatever it is that you post about is what you're going to become known for. So make sure that whatever you're posting about that you actually know about, you know, don't pretend to be um, a movement aficionado if you are not really that type of person. So just, you have to be specific in growing your name, but you can still generalize. Like I don't only get people that want help with psychology as far as powerlifting goes, but because I can help them with powerlifting as well as the mental aspects. So you're eventually going to grow to all of that. But just make sure that you know whatever you know about the subject matter that you're posting about. Yeah, like that's a fantastic way of, of looking at it is specialization in something, you know, specialize in something that you're going to become known for. And those are the type of people who are really going to reach out most to you. Uh, like Riley said, I, I talk a lot about movement and intention and how we're doing things and how the best do things and be efficient with things. So people who know that they have 
you know, less than ideal patterns or poor, poor form and function are often the ones who reach out to me to get that help to improve their patterns, improve their positions, improve their performance. And Riley will have people who certain sometimes need a different temperament or different tone or talk to because they've been, I don't want to use the term bully, but uh, dismissed by prior coaches and stuff like that for problems that they have in their lives. And not that Riley helps them with the problems with their lives, but she's able to listen and adjust and adapt the programming to help them get through during these periods because they are struggling. And some coaches don't. Some coaches are just suck it up, walk it off, rub some dirt on it and do it. And believe me, there are times I want to say that too. <laughs> but I know better because not everyone's me and not everyone's her. And I don't know them long enough to say that. Sometimes you have to. But that's not always the case. And some coaches just have that high school football mentality of, you know, walk it off, son, let's go. And it's like, doesn't work that way because for a lot of us this is a hobby and it's an outlet and something we want to enjoy and if you make it unenjoyable they're going to step away from you so i like that perspective a lot okay next question is can you go over heavy bench holds and why to use them yeah so this is something that gets a lot of discussion lately it comes back about every five to ten years pete cisco had a program called power factor training years ago which was all heavy isometrics and all heavy partial range of motion which on paper sounded great. You're getting super comfortable with handling these heavy loads. When the application was tested after 12 weeks of training, only partial range and partial holds, everybody tested weaker because they never went through the full given range of motion. The actual carryover and transfer for the full given range of motion has to be trained entirely through that full given range of motion because strength is specific to within 10 to 15%, 10 to 15 degrees of that joint angle. So while heavy holds can build a lot of confidence, like, Heavy walkouts in a squat, if you get used to a heavy weight in your back, it doesn't freak you out when you unrack and walk it out because you've been there before. It doesn't in any way, shape, or form carry over to the actual function of the squat, but it carries over to the mental aspect of, I've walked out 700, 630 doesn't feel like shit anymore. So in that aspect, if something feels heavy every time I rack it, it's going to help. With the bench press, though, there is a little bit more benefit to holding heavy loads than walking out a heavy squat because the bench press... Uh, I know Riley's talked about this in her story, and I got a similar question a couple weeks ago. The bench press, when you unrack and you hold it, because you're under the load, your serratus is activated, your triceps are activated, your lats are activated, your pec minor degree is activated. You're holding isometric stability, getting used to holding that weight, where a lot of people struggle with the bench press is letting go of that tension. So doing 10 to 15 second isometric holds with heavy weights is going to help you build and condition to that position that you have to hold to then press the weight. It won't carry over to your concentric strength at all. You will get no, nothing out of concentric movement with a heavy isometric hold because you haven't gone through the weight. But you're going to get the psychological benefit, but you're also going to condition the position because how many times have we been to a meet where someone missed the lift because they started cramping trying to hold that tension? This usually happens because when someone trains the bench press in a meet, I'm sorry, in a gym, they're done with the lift in three seconds. A heavy single in the gym is three seconds. The weight's unracked it, they, they lower it, they raise it, they come back up, they rack it again. When you get to a meet, you're holding it like eight to 10 seconds. It's entirely different because it's going to be unracked. You're going to wait for your liftoff person to get out of the way before you get a start command and your press command and your rack command, and then you got to bring it back. So that three seconds turns into eight fast. And if you haven't conditioned to holding that load in that position for that amount of time, you're going to cramp because you're not strong enough to hold it. So it's one of those things where psychologically it's going to help you, but physiologically it's going to help you learn to hold that tension for a long period of time which in turn will help you lift heavier and heavier weights because you get used to the position. Yeah, I think that for confidence sake for the bench holds, that's most what the benefit is. Um, I have them in for just a few clients that I like currently that are in peak um, or about to be peaking that they're holding heavy weights because 
you're getting to numbers that scare them. And so if you're holding a heavy weight and it's 10, 15, 20 pounds heavier than your max, by the time you go down to your max, your max doesn't feel heavy anymore. So you're a little bit more confident. So that's more of a mental game there. Um, I answered this one in my story and I said the same thing that Trevor just said, where it does help you stabilize when it's out above your chest a little bit more because that tends to be the shaky part. And honestly, that's where most people lose their bench is the fact that they have they lack the stabilization to transfer from eccentric to concentric. So if you're learning to eccentrically kind of stabilize a little bit better, it's likely that your concentric will be better. Not that the heavy hold is helping your concentric, like Trevor said, but it is helping your eccentric, which if it's transitioned to your concentric better, you're going to have a better press. So being more stable under the bar is never a bad thing. Stable is strong. That's how if we can't stabilize things, we generally can't lift them. So most of all, yes, I think that the bench uh, heavy holds are mostly just for psychological benefit, confidence, getting someone to not like unrack the weight and be like, holy shit, this is heavy. Because there have been plenty of times where I've unracked a weight that I've never touched before and it's over my chest and I'm like, oof. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I'm just like, this is, uh, this is not going to go well for me. And then if you're mentally already telling yourself that it's too heavy, it's going to be too heavy and you're not going to press it. So confidence, yes, secondary would be, or Initial would be confidence. Secondary would be stabilization. Right. What's our next question? How to accurately gauge RPE in training. Ah, so this is a, a great discussion to have. Uh, let's go over RPE and RIR real quick because they, they are interrelated to some degree. And I was listening to Mike Tashir talk about this to a degree. If you go RPE, it is rate of perceived exertion. And usually it's a scale of one to 10. And so an RPE-8 would say that you have two reps left in the tank. An RIR-2 would also mean two reps left in the tank. They're kind of interchangeable. But the RPE is perceived exertion, and the rate, uh, I'm sorry, reps in reserve is trying to get to that actual point. And it can vary based off reps. So he makes a great discussion on, on why he still uses RPE versus IRR for certain things. Like if you're doing a set of 20 at an RPE-8, it's really easy to kind of say, all right, I probably have two or three left. We're getting fatigued. It's burning, shutting it down at that point. You're getting to that point. But if you're trying to pick a second 20 with an RI2, it's really difficult to then pick a load and get there and figure that out because you don't know what weight's going to get you that point. So there's reason to use both. Um, first of all, you have to be honest. I'd rather someone undershoot their RPE a little bit than overshoot this every time. You know, when someone's telling you it's an RPE 8, that means literally you have two reps left in the tank. And that last rep they do in the video is an absolute grinder or they're shaking or convulsing. That is not an RP8. Just because you said it was an RP8 and posted on the internet doesn't make it an RP8. If you couldn't do two more reps, it was not an RP8. It was a nine, nine and a half. And you have to learn to be honest with yourself because if you're overshooting your RPE, which is used to build a certain amount of work and quality and capacity over time, you're going to fatigue out faster. You're going to burn out. You're going to have nothing left to grow from there because you've already burnt yourself out before you got there. It's kind of like when someone's in peak and we're constantly talking about being in peak of dissipating fatigue and lifting weights that you can move fast and lowering volume to get down so you're not tired. And they're constantly bringing it to that grinding point. If you have grinded the last four weeks of your peak on every single training that you've got there, by the time you get to your meet, you're probably going to underperform because you haven't recovered in time just from that one week meet week deload. RPE is the same thing. If you're overshooting your RPE every week, you don't deserve an RPE. I'm going to give you percentages every single freaking time. Because that way I have a variance of 5% or so. And if I know you're someone who overshoots and uses the variance all the time when you shouldn't, 
I'm going to underscore it. Instead of giving you five by three at 85%, which you should be able to get through at that percentage, and I know you overshoot, you're going to round up to 90 anyways, I'm going to give you a five by three at 75%. So the best you can do is round up to 80 so that you're, you're in the zone you should be. You start learning that athlete. You have to be honest with yourself. I don't care what you want to call it on the internet. The best way to gauge your RPE is to shut the fucking camera off. Shut the camera off so you're not trying to impress anyone, and then you're going to actually learn what your actual rate of perceived exertion is because all, the only choice you have at that point is to feel it. You have to learn what your actual RPE 8 is to know what your 9 is, to know what your 7 is, to know what your 6 is. You've got to learn that I'm shutting this down with two reps left in the tank feels like. Rate of perceived exertion is not a number. It is a feeling. You will get to a number there, but you have to learn to feel it first. And if you're looking at the camera and saying, well, it didn't look like an RPE 8 or it didn't feel like an RPE 8, there's two different stories there. It should feel like an RPE 8 if it's an RPE 8. I don't care what it looked like. When you perform the set, before you looked at the camera, before you posted the internet, what did it feel like? Because there's a lot of people who will grind and then be like, that's my eight today. Like, no, that's your nine. <laughs> and they did that because the camera's on and they don't want to look bad. If I've ever overshot my RPE, I will actually say I overshot my RPE. Uh, there was a deadlift a couple weeks ago where I took the belt and the shoes off and I'm like, I kind of overshot my RPE, but it was more about making sure I didn't quit on myself during the day. Sometimes it happens. It should happen sparingly though, not frequently. RPE is also kind of a sliding scale. And I said this in my story too, is like, it can be able to gauge that and like know what adequate jumps to make when you're getting to top end weights. So, you know, I gave the example, like if you have an RPE eight for the day and your first set was a seven and your second set was a nine, you probably balanced out for like the actual stimulus there. So you don't necessarily need to be so concerned about like, like, oh, I did, I did overshoot and like, or, oh, I undershot or whatever. Like, as long as it is kind of balancing out, it is okay. If you have multiple sets like that, as long as it balances out to that RPE that you're supposed to, you're hitting the appropriate stimulus because one was an undershoot, one was an overshoot, they will balance out. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You have to be honest with yourself. Most people aren't. Um, I am someone who tends to, it feels heavier than it looks. So if it felt like an eight, it was an eight. If I, Because if I watch a video back, to me, it'll probably look like a seven or something. But if it felt like an eight, I'm going to stick with that. Um, and that's generally me. If I have an RP, I will try to, before I even watch the video, I will say, what did that feel like to me? Like, oh, that felt like my eight and then watch the video back. And sometimes you laugh and you're like, oh, that definitely wasn't an eight, but that's the point. It's how you perceive it to be, it's not how it looks. Uh, we've talked before about, or I talked to Tony Rogers, I think about, um, observational perceived exertion, which is like me looking at the video and being like, that to me looks like a seven or saying that to a client, like, oh, that to my, that client, that looks like a seven. But if I'm saying it feels like an eight or the client is saying it feels like an eight, then it's probably an eight, unless it's like egregiously different. Like we're talking about where it's, you know, you're grinding it and it took you 12 seconds to lock it out. That's not an eight. Um, if it looks like you could have done 20 more reps, it's also not an eight. But for the most part, if it's relatively close, you have to trust that your instinct was correct in choosing the appropriate weight. Yeah, I, I think it's truly important. A lot of lifters don't like it. I have several lifters who are high-level lifters who don't like RPE. They want to be told what percentage to use in that zone, and it's fine. But I think it's important to know because it helps you gauge meet day attempts. Yeah. You can really see where you're going because literally your meet day should be RPE 8, RPE 9, RPE 10. That's how first, second, third attempt should go. So it's important to know what your actual 8 is because that's your opener if it's a single. And if you're taking an RPE 8 single and it actually looks like a 9.5, you should not be opening there. And some people do, and then they have nowhere to go and they have a bad day. 
So yeah, Edward Blair's commentary. Edward Blair's like the, I think he still has like the 220 full power bench record. It's hurt, or I don't remember if John Hack actually beat him. I don't remember, but Edward Blair is someone who's incredibly tactile, tactical in his, his program and his training. And he's talking about that only you can know your RPE. Someone cannot look at your RPE for say and say that wasn't your eight. I, like I'm a, like Riley mentioned, I'm a speed guy. If my bar slows down at all, that's my nine. I have maybe one more, maybe. I'm not a grinder. So you're not gonna see me grind a lot of reps they're gonna move pretty fast and I can put a setup and people are like, that wasn't an RP eight, that was like a six. I'm like, no, dude, if my speed drops off at all, I'm done. That was my eight, you know? <laughs> I know how that feels because it drops off really fast. You have to know yourself. You have to know and be able to regulate yourself because like I said, understanding RPE, RPE eight is your opener, RPE nine is your second, RPE 10 is your third. That's how it meets gonna go. It's important to learn that feeling so you can trust yourself in picking attempts. Yes, absolutely. All right, so I think we're, uh, pretty much done here because it's about to kick us off in about two minutes. So thank you, Riley, for joining me. You're welcome. All right. Culture Nutra sponsors the podcast. Make sure you're following at Culture Nutra on Instagram. If you need programming but don't need coaching per se, we have the Cultivating Strength program. It's available in both of our bios. Uh, still have it for wraps. So Edward Blair still has the full power in wraps, all-time bench record. <laughs> he wasn't going to let me forget that one. <laughs> what are you done with? No, I'm fucking with you. <laughs> I'll probably see you in three and a half weeks, Edward. But, um, Cultivating Strength Program, the first week is free. If you ever want to try it, it is in both of our bios. You can go to Riley's page or my page and click in the bios. We both have entries in there, so there are things in there. And the, you saw Sophie in here. There's a Sophie shirt for sale in there, too, so make sure you check that out. Anything you want to add, Riley? Not this week. <laughs> is, there, is there ever a week you want to add things? There. Good one. Yes, there was one. <laughs> all right, well, we'll see you guys all next week. And the podcast drops on Monday. You can listen to it this entirely if you couldn't stay here. And thank you all for supporting and listening. Bye.